Eagles Entertainment. Eagle Eye in the Sky is fueled by Gatorade, the official sports drink of the Philadelphia Eagles. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right of the week, and week two is almost here as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 270. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with my buddy Ben Fennell about the Eagles' home opener against the L.A. Rams. What are some of the matchups that we are both excited to see? What are some of the keys to victory on both sides of the ball? Well, we covered all of that in that discussion in Chalk Talk. After that, Ben and I are going to chat through our scouting report segment and last week we focused on the guy who ended up making one of the most pivotal plays in that week one matchup Washington corner Jimmy Moreland who are we going to cover this week well you can wait to find out it's a little bit later in the show but that is not all because at the end of today's episode I also caught up with Eagles cornerback Nikel Roby Coleman to talk about his development as a corner not just through in the NFL but also at the college level at USC but before we get into that just a couple of things I want to make sure that we hit on quick reminder best way to throw us your support is to go on to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, leave us a comment, leave us a rating. I can't tell you, you guys have been awesome. You've been coming through. A bunch of new comments and questions have come through. We're going to answer a couple of them later in the show. Really appreciate everybody that continues to do that. It just helps make this podcast more visible to everybody, especially on Apple Podcasts. Really, really appreciate everybody that has done that. And then also, just a quick little uh, cross-promotion. Make sure you go check out Eagles Game Plan, which will be dropping on Friday on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and the Eagles Mobile app. We're going to talk about that here today with Ben Fennell, but you can go and check that out. If you live locally in Philadelphia, you can check it out Sunday morning, 10 a.m. on NBC 10. A lot of hard work. Great analysis this week from uh, Greg Cosell. Obviously, John Clark, Ike Reese, Mike Quick. Really appreciate all the hard work those guys have put in, but we talk about Eagles game plan. Let's bring in the guy that is a huge, huge part of the production of that show. It's time now for Chalk Talk and Ben Fennell. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. All right, excited for another edition of Chalk Talk here with my buddy Ben Fennell. Ben, uh, welcome back to the show, man. Excited to, uh, to dig into this matchup. And obviously, we covered the Eagles-Rams matchup, kind of soup to nuts on Eagles game plan this week, a lot that we covered. And really, the, the two big themes, uh, you look, obviously, the Eagles offensive line against Aaron Donald, what they, saw, what they had from that eight-sack performance, and then defensively trying to defend that Sean McVay offense and the misdirection elements and things of that nature. And I'll, I'll start at the top with the Eagles offensive line. Um, you and I watched the film together Monday morning. What were your takeaways from, from that eight-sack performance uh, that we saw from the Eagles offense last week against Washington? Well, obviously having eight sacks to your name is never a good thing, but I felt like after watching the tape, it wasn't as uh, you know dramatic as it was watching it live, in my opinion. I felt like the reasons were a variety, but they were manageable and they were fixable. And very often was it just a mano y mano man losing. It's a lot of mental errors, some confusion, some young guys, some communication errors, and that stuff's all fixable. When you just get whooped at the point of attack or a man versus man, that's some concern about your ability to compete. But I feel like they have players to compete. Now it's just cleaning up all those mistakes. And obviously, being down your left tackle, your right guard, your right tackle, you're behind the eight ball a little bit. 
And I think the Eagles were in a little better position than other teams, having a veteran like a Jason Peters and a young guy like a Jack Driscoll and a lot of really nice parts. But obviously the injury is not ideal. The injuries in the game, not ideal. But this is life in the NFL and this is week one. And every team is kind of going through this offensive line shuffling or some sort of shuffling at various positions. And that's what it's all about, surviving a season. What's uh? What was your thought on Jack Driscoll? We, we talked. I talked about a little bit with uh, with Greg Cosell. We did the uh, the the telestration of a couple of his plays. Uh, you and I were both pretty impressed uh, with what the rookie did in his first start. Yeah, got the start uh, at right tackle. Played fifty snaps before getting dinged up. And I think just on paper, getting the nod over a three year player like Matt Pryor or a project player like Jordan Malata, who's been with the team now you know, on his third year, I think just says a lot about what everybody thinks of him and his development, his projection to get that start at right tackle. Impressive player, but he played a lot of ball in the SEC against NFL caliber players. I thought he was excellent, Fran. I thought he was balanced. He was smooth, tight hands consistently. He had to face Chase Young one-on-one, several reps. That's a number two overall pick in the draft. That's an absolute terror. He played with really good knee bend, good posture, head up. I thought he did fine on those one-on-ones. Wasn't overwhelmed. Wasn't on anybody's highlight reels. Like we know Chase Young will probably put some tackles on this season. Um, and it's just unfortunate. He actually got hurt on the free play interception, making the tackle. So, you know, it's kind of an unconventional play as well. But you love to see the just the hustle and the effort. And just unfortunately got dinged up. And I hope he's okay. Yeah, no question. I, I Look, I think you have to kind of temper the expectations of what we're talking about in terms of the overall upside. But I thought he had a really – he did a really nice job, really good debut, I thought, for Jack Driscoll. Uh, we mentioned Aaron Donald, too, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't, just didn't talk about him for a little bit. Um, you know, obviously, look, one of the best players in the NFL, regardless of position. I just want to get your takeaway just from, like, studying him on film, just from an individual standpoint. We could talk a little bit about the scheme, too. But uh, what are your takeaways from just watching Aaron Donald on film and, and what makes him so good? Well, really quick, I just want to highlight some of the other rookies around the NFL that had played tackle because, Ooh, okay. you know, uh, Jack Driscoll being a fourth round pick yep. wasn't really the bona fide, you know, plug in starter at tackle. You know, we kind of were set at both tackle positions, but everybody else around the league, you know, Jedrick Wills and Mackay Becton and Andrew Thomas and Tristan Wirfs, all these high draft picks. So just want to give that extra nod to Jack Good point. Driscoll. In the mid-round pick, not having the kind of mental expectation of being a starter, kind of thinking, hey, I'm going to come in and learn. I'm going to be on that second, third team, maybe even on the practice squad. So just getting himself into that mental acclimate to be ready and to be a starter week one in the NFL, I just think uh, it just doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, But transitioning over to Aaron Donald, violent, violent phone booth player. And just the quickness in short area bursts, I think, is what stands out with Aaron Donald. And the fact that he's a trench player for the most part, he'll line up obviously in some space and some unique alignments from time to time. But his ability to be productive in a phone booth is what's so impressive. Those violent hands and how fast he can go from one move to the next move, whether it's a pass rush plan or whether it's a counter move. He is just so slippery. He is so aggressive. He is so violent and he's awkward. And I love hearing the offensive linemen talk about him at O-line masterminds because it's really this kumbaya on how do we block this guy? He's only 6'1", 
So he doesn't have a big strike zone. He doesn't have a big torso. It's tough to get your hands on him. And he's so quick. And he's so violent. He's 6'1". Sometimes he's playing four or five inches underneath a 6'5 guard or a 6'5 tackle. Just a very tough matchup for these NFL offensive linemen. Yeah, and you mentioned you know the small strike zone, but it's not. It not only does he have the small strike zone, but he's one of the few players in the league that I feel that does such a great job of constantly gaining ground through the rush while his hands are also going like crazy. I mean, he is like, I've said this before, like he is like this little bowling ball of razor blades, like just constantly flying, constantly moving, constantly attacking. And so not only are you trying to attack and get your hands on him, but you're also trying to make sure that you counter what he's doing in terms of his rush move and how he's trying to attack you. Make sure that your feet are in the right place. Try and mirror with what he's trying to do. He wins in so many ways, so many different pass rush moves. And then not only that, but the next part of this is how they use him. And Greg and I talked about it earlier this week here on the show about uh, what they do with their front alignments to try and isolate him one-on-one. Um, you know, it's t- We could talk about the different ways that you can try and block up an edge rusher. You can use your running backs to chip out of the backfield. Same with your tight ends. You can slide protection that way, things of that nature. It's harder to do some of that. You're kind of limited in the things that you can do when it's a defensive tackle as a three technique or as a nose or as a, as a zero. Um, and they move, they move Donald everywhere, not only inside, but they'll line him up outside the tackle as a five technique, as a six eye inside, inside of the tight end, outside the tight end. I mean, he moves all over the front. So, you know, as an offensive line, you've got to be going up every, every play pre-snap and saying, all right, this is where he's lined up. Here's how we have to kind of account for him. And I think one of the notable things from this past week uh, which made a lot of the highlights on SportsCenter and across Twitter, is how he's now being used to open up opportunities for other people with a lot of those stunts and twists. Some of those coming in a very entertaining way on some of those TT stunts where he has three, four yards of steam, and all he has to do is pin an offensive lineman down. Yep. So he's just barreling down on a center or a guard and then allowing that other tackle to loop around, which creates a lot of issues. Because teams are obviously focused on Aaron Donald, sliding protection his way, sliding chip help, sliding eyes towards him. So just imagine just the visual of being an offense, pointing to the left at Aaron Donald, sending all this extra attention left. But Aaron Donald is actually working against all that back to our right. So it creates a lot of kind of conflict and a lot of against the grain, what I call, when you're sending protection one way and then they slant into that protection. It's just creating a lot of issues for offensive lines, not only blocking this guy one-on-one and moving around, but now using him to open up opportunities for other people is really going to hinder your ability to focus just on him. Because I'll tell you, Michael Brockers is a really good player. Leonard Floyd is a very loose pass rusher. Samson Ekebon is a very young, exciting pass rusher. There's other guys that can play off of Aaron Donald. So the more you key on Donald, and they know they're keying on him, Now what else can he do for the players around him? And it's just really fun to watch. So let's go over to the other side. And obviously that's Sean McVay offense. You and I have really had a lot of fun over the last, you know, four years or so breaking down this offense because it's it's a well it's a well defined scheme, right? Like there are staples, they have a really clear identity, and seeing them year after year, it's been fun to watch them kind of grow into that identity, watch Jared Goff continue to develop, watch those offensive offensive weapons around him, you know, kind of mold into that scheme. And uh, you know, so we were we were sitting in the beginning of the week and we're like, all right, like what aspects do we want to cover? Because I feel like, you know, in years past when we're putting the show together, when we're getting ready to play the Rams, it's all right, well, 
let's do the three level stretch, you know, play action under center, uh, you know, getting Goff on the move outside the pocket. Um, you know, let, hey, it all starts with the zone run game. Let's talk about the stretch runs with Todd Gurley. You know, we've done all that. And I like the, the path that we took this week where it's the misdirection element, you know, with the jet sweep action, with uh, obviously we, even with the, the boots and, and with the off the play fakes, like all that stuff is designed to, uh, you know, put those defenders on the second and third level in conflict. And so how it's a, a huge assignment game for the Eagles back seven. Yeah, absolutely. And the offense is just very interesting considering the other offenses around the NFL. And just to put it in perspective, Let's compare Sean McVay to Andy Reid and Doug Peterson. Andy Reid, Doug Peterson, very, very multiple. Tons of formations, tons of personnel groupings. Not the deepest playbook, but a lot of different ways to dress up and run concepts differently. And that's very, very challenging for defenses. Sean McVay, on the other hand, comes out with the same look, the same personnel grouping. Their Super Bowl year, they were 95% or something ridiculous, 11 personnel. And everything starts the same. This is to the epitome of a foundational offense. And everything is built off of that outside zone stretch run game. And once they're clicking on early downs and the ability to run the ball well, now everything is open. Now you have all the wrinkles off of that. You have all the misdirection. But everything is built off of a foundational scheme. And you come out with similar personnel, similar for formations on a down-to-down basis. It becomes very stale and becomes very tough for defenses to pick up on what the intended concept will be because there's very little tell because of how stale the formations are. Now, this past week, Fran, I thought we saw some difference in Sean McVay yep. working in some more 12 personnel, a little bit more uh, Higby Everett out there as opposed to the 11 personnel. Uh, which is a little bit of a transition. You've seen more teams do it. Obviously, the Eagles seem to be one of the front runners for multiple tight end sets. But this is just creating another wrinkle in the McVay offense. Now, one of the issues I've always had with the McVay offense, all that misdirection, all that eye candy, what's the one issue with it? It takes time. So when you want to go jet motion, orbit motion, outside zone play action, that takes time. And when you have a defensive lineman that's not waiting or reading or, you know, is wants to fly up the field, like we saw the Chicago Bears a couple years ago, two years ago, really uh, put that offense on the fritz. If you have a, a defensive line like the Eagles, that's an upfield flying team, all that slow developing action could come back to bite them. But if they're able to run the ball well on early downs, it opens up everything in the offense. Yeah, I think that it's the certainly the run game has been huge for them. And you mentioned the offensive line. I mean, that was the big drop off for them last year, right? You lose uh, the center John Sullivan after the Super Bowl year. Um, they lost uh, uh, the the guard who left uh, Roger Saffold. Thank you. Yes, really Roger good Saffold. player. Saffold no question. Is a great, powerful player. Yeah. So you lose Saffold. You lose John Sullivan. Um, they had injuries along the O line last year, so guys are kind of you know moving around, and the the offense kind of short circuited. You know, J- Jared Goff did, it was not as effective. The run game was not as effective. Obviously, Gurley was banged up as well, um, but they just could not 
get anything going. So now they're hoping, okay, like if the offensive line can really kind of solidify and, and you know, we, ha- we have some continuity. Um, you have Andrew Whitworth still at left tackle. Havenstein has kind of been up and down at right tackle. I believe he was a, a second-round pick out of Wisconsin a few years ago. He got benched halfway through uh, last season for a short time. But, you know, they slid the right guard, Austin Blythe, into center. Austin Corbett is there. They slid Joe Noteboom in at left guard. So, you know, they're hoping that they have some continuity and that'll kind of, you know, give them a little bit of a bump up, a little bit of an assist here. And Fran, uh, when I look at this O-line on paper, yeah, these don't look like people movers. This right. isn't the most imposing offensive line, but what is it about the stretch offensive run scheme that they don't need to be people movers in order to be effective? Yep. No, no question. It's all about, um, you know, the misdirection element of, okay, we're going to get everybody moving one way. And then we have the threat of going back the other way. So yeah, exactly. essentially, essentially lateral stretch of the offensive line. You don't yep. need to blow guys off with that vertical displacement, that power mm-hmm. run game, that downhill action. You need to be just a little light on your feet, strand defensive linemen out laterally and let that running back pick and choose what gap or what defender has been exploited or compromised. And I think when you see like a note boom or a Blythe or Corbett in there, you may be a little bit underwhelmed, but what they're being asked to do, they can be successful at. Hmm. Let's get into some matchups here. What's one key one-on-one matchup uh, that you're excited to watch in this game? You know, I'm going to kind of take this another direction because I really want to see how our defense responds to the Rams screen game. Hmm. And I don't feel like the Rams really got it going like they wanted to last week. They only had three screen attempts, only one, I think, generated positive yards, and there was a penalty on it. Um, It's a huge staple of their offense, and you have all that eye candy. You have all that misdirection. It could be a huge, huge advantage for the Rams offense if the run game is clicking and you get defenses just moving one direction, and then they throw those receiver screens out the back door or even a tight end screen to Gerald Everett like we saw last week. And that's been something I thought our linebackers have been doing really well with. TJ Edwards, his instincts, his eyes seemed like he was making a screenplay every day in camp out in practice. So I'm just really interested to see how they work in the misdirection and the variety of the screen game from Sean McVay. Yeah, that is a focus, uh, certainly in our uh, Eagles game plan episode this week. Um, Ike Reese did a great job of showing how that eye discipline will be pivotal. Uh, Greg Cosell did a breakdown of a misdirection screen from the Rams on Sunday night against the Dallas Cowboys. So make sure you go watch uh, those segments together uh, on Eagles game plan this week. My one-on-one matchup, and to me it was like, I'm just looking at this Rams defense, and uh, Mike Renner from Pro Football Focus put out a great stat, I believe it was on Monday night, um, just talking about that that group and basically said that, Look, they are a heavy, heavy zone defense. They played two snaps of man coverage all night against the Dallas Cowboys. So uh, when you look at, at how they're built, how they're looking to attack, um, you know, or how they're looking to defend opposing offensive attacks, to me, I look in the middle of the field and I see the safeties. All right, John Johnson has been there for a few years. Uh, you know, I believe he was just given the franchise tag. You have Jordan Fuller, who's a rookie sixth-round pick out of Ohio State. Micah Kaiser is a, a third-year linebacker out of Virginia. He's the middle linebacker, the three-down player. These are guys I feel like you can get after a little bit in coverage, especially Fuller and Kaiser. And so to me, it's like, all right, you saw what Dallas Goddard did this week against Washington. We know what Zach Ertz can be in the middle of the field. But since they are a zone coverage team – it's not only just those guys, but what can the Eagles do to try and force some matchups, create some of one-on-one opportunities, not just with Ertz and Goddard and Sanders in the middle, but getting some of those receivers, a Deshaun Jackson or a Jalen Rager or a John Hightower matched up on one of these defenders in the middle. And I think you know that was what made me last week 
go to look at some of the matchups of 12 personnel that the Cowboys ran, which they only ran, I think it was like 10 or 12 snaps of 12 personnel in the whole game, and they threw like four or five passes out of it. How did Jacksonville – or how did Jacksonville – how did the L.A. Rams line up to that? What did Jalen Ramsey do? Now, Jalen Ramsey lined up to the short side of the field throughout the course of the game. Most of the time, he was lined up to the short side. So, if you line up with both tight ends, you know, Dallas Goddard, Zach Gertz, on the line of scrimmage to the short side of the field, is Jalen Ramsey going to shadow, go with the receiver on the opposite side, or is he going to stay to the tight end side? And what I saw against Dallas was – Jalen Ramsey stayed to the tight end side. So what that means is you've got, if they're a nickel, you're going to have Troy Hill lined up one-on-one against whoever's in the slot. It could be Deshaun Jackson or Rager. If it's not, if they're in base against 12, well, now you've got a safety lined up over the slot. You've got a linebacker over the slot. And so now it's like, okay, not only are you trying to win those one-on-one matchups with the athletic Zach Ertz, the athletic Dallas Goddard, you're also using those receivers and creating those one-on-one matchups that way. I'll be very interested to see what the Eagles can do from that standpoint, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we saw so much quarters coverage by those Rams too. Those safeties were so shallow consistently. Just interested to see this week if uh, they maybe give a little bit more depth, you know, some of the more speed elements on the Eagles offense and the Dallas Cowboys offense where, you know, Dallas really wants to run the ball and that be their kind of foundational attack. So I want to see if the Rams are going to mix things up. Obviously, they didn't have Taylor Rapp at full health and only was able to play, I think, 12 to 15 snaps there. So he's a really versatile piece as well to have back that I think if he's healthy will really alleviate some of the – uh the pressure with some of those tight end matchups as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Taylor Rapp, a guy that I loved coming out of uh, coming out of Washington last year, I and mean, you know, really was a sub package player for them in Week One. We'll see if that role expands this year. Um, all right, let's talk. Mind Fran, like with those quarter safeties being so shallow, Dallas only threw the ball downfield twice all game. So obviously, one of those was uh, the offensive pass interference from Michael Gallup late, but they didn't challenge. I think those quarter safeties enough. They're sitting there at ten yards pre-snap. You got to stretch the slot receivers. You got to take some shots on the outside. Maybe some of those classic kind of post dig concepts, those mills, those quarters beaters we might yep. see in early downs. And remember, I believe this is another pro football focus stat, but the, the Eagles were number one in the NFL this past week in terms of their ar- average air yards per attempt. And ter- you know, just kind of showing how aggressive they were down the field. We saw all the deep shots that you know were connected and didn't connect uh, for this Eagles offense, but they're going to be willing to chuck it downfield. We'll see if those safeties stay shallow. Uh, in this game to your point um all right so talking about eagles game plan i'm interested to get your thoughts on something that maybe got left on the cutting room floor you know what's something that you really wish we were able to sneak into the show well for me you know i talked a little bit about jalen ramsey uh i was able to get this in with with mike uh, with mike quick he did a great job of talking through jalen um you know and how he was used uh, you know up at the line of scrimmage and just so physical and he would mug up the receivers especially when they were lined up outside the numbers the only time he would really back off and play off was when the receivers would move inside the numbers in a tighter split. Now they've got a little bit of a two-way go. You're typically going to see the corner back off in those situations. But if they were lined up outside the numbers to the boundary, Jalen Ramsey was up on the line of scrimmage, and he was going to be stealing your wallet. Like, he's trying to steal your lunch money uh, and you're early in the down and just erase you from the progression. Wish we could have gotten a chance to show that uh, as much as I, you know, we've got, you know, that would have been something to be able to throw in there. But uh, what's something that was left on the cutting room floor for you? You know, and Ramsey, just having that trusted press corner, we noted a couple plays where 
they let him do his thing and coverage is being rolled elsewhere and the luxury of having a trusted press man corner that can survive on an island, not only at the point of attack, but vertically just alleviates and gives the defense so much flexibility. I think we're starting to see that a little bit with Darius Slay and some mm-hmm. of his matchups and one-on-one assignments and how he doesn't always need that help over the top. No question. But I thought very quietly our defensive line had a dominant game. Mm-hmm. And that's Fletcher Cox like we expect, but Malik Jackson, you know, after uh, being injured all of last year except for the first half of week one, Josh Sweat, I thought they played outstanding. And not just quality plays – but we had plays where they destroyed the right tackle, the left guard, the left tackle, the center. Pretty much everybody made a highlight except somebody against Brandon Scherf, who is a really good player. But 11 pressures between these three, four for Cox, four for Sweat, three for Malik, I believe. And just their hustle to the ball to see Cox at 300 pounds, chase plays in the numbers, Malik Jackson, it's infectious. And I love seeing that. And yeah, some of those plays are 10 yard gains and they're down the field, but the hustle, the flow to the ball, the intensity and Josh Sweat just seems to be ascending and ascending and ascending each year, getting healthier, getting stronger. And when you see guys trying new pass rush moves and maybe it's not always successful, but still doing their job, that's telling me the game is slowing down for them. And I really think he's comfortable out there and I'm not sure it was close. I think Josh Sweat was the best defensive player on the field for the Eagles mm. against the uh, the Washington football team. Yeah. Obviously, Darius Slay did some really nice things on the outside. Fletch is a beast. A couple other big plays. But on a down-to-down basis in his 40, 45 snaps, Josh Sweat had an outstanding game on Sunday. Yeah, I thought when you talk about him setting the edge – how important is that going to be in this game, right? I mean, when you talk about how the that offense is built off the run action and you can't let things get going on the ground, setting a strong edge you know, in this run game is going to be huge, um, you know, against Malcolm Brown and Cam Akers and, and that rushing attack. Do you think, Fran, is there a reason why we have traditionally and in recent history been successful against this Rams offense that has – really run through the NFL in the last three years. And I think we're one of the few teams that really come out on top in several of those matchups. Is there something stylistically that's kind of coming to a head about our defense and their offense? I think it's two things. It's the, it's the run defense has always been one of the least best. I mean, if you look at since Jim Schwartz has been here since 2016, I, I can't imagine that there's a team that's defended the run better year over year over year uh, over those four seasons. And And you tie their one of their hands behind their backs and make them one dimensional the whole foundational scheme kind of starts to crumble. Yep, and then when you talk about just everybody being assignment sound, I feel like, you know, when you talk about uh, Jalen Mills and Malcolm Jenkins and Rodney McLeod and, you know, the guys in the back seven over the course of the last three, four, five years, those guys are, those guys are smart, instinctive, you know, assignment sound players. I feel like that that's another big part of this is that they're not going to put you in a position – to lose the football game, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're like, was Jalen Mills always the fastest corner on the outside? No, but he's always been smart, competitive, tough, um, and always, you know, very, very instinctive and always just did his job. And I think when you look at him at the safety position, that's something that's going to serve him well there as well. Uh, yeah, I think those are the, really the two big themes. That's a good question. Um, you know, just looking back. Yeah, and and our upfield attack on the D line, that upfield landmark attack, our zone run killers. And if you fly off the ball and you don't allow yourself to get reached or strung out laterally, man, you can blow those plays up really quick if you fly up the field. And our defense has a knack for that kind of track stance, get up the field attitude. 
All right, Ben, every week I'm going to ask you uh, favorite stat of the week. You know, you, you do a great job of kind of putting together all the stats for all of our talent for Eagles game plan. Uh, you certainly pull a lot of numbers for me as well to use throughout the course of the week. What's a stat or two that uh, you feel is like, you know, one of the more interesting ones when it comes to this matchup? You know, there's a couple of directions I could have gone. There was some interesting run scheme stuff from the Rams and what they do. They're starting to mix things up a little bit more, but I'm going to be a little vanilla for this first one out the gates and make it player focused. Okay. About 10 pressures from Aaron Donald last week. That's ridiculous. Just speaking to his impact on the game. And I know the sack totals really only get cited at the end of the year. And maybe the quarterback hits make the highlights, which you only had three of, but the 10 pressures and the destruction on a down to down basis, this guy impacts the game, impacts the passer. And I promise you gets quarterbacks eyes to drop. And he is a guy that is feared from offensive linemen, quarterbacks, running backs. We saw what he did to Zeke Elliott having to chip block him after he beat the left guard. This guy is a dominant play destructor. And I think it shows up more when you watch just him on a down-to-down basis. So the 10 pressure is really impressive. Yeah, and actually, let me throw another individual one at you, okay? Cooper Cup, last season – most productive third down receiver in the NFL in 2019. I'm never going to bring stats to, but I know this is one that, that you gave to me, uh, not just this past week, but also from last year. 37 catches, 571 yards, 15.4 yards per catch, just on third down last year. Seven touchdowns on 51 targets. All that stuff led the NFL. So you're talking about third down. The Eagles have been historically a pretty good third down defense. They only allowed Washington to convert twice on third down this past weekend. Cooper Cup is the guy that when it's third down, you got to know where he is, what they're trying to do to get him open. I think you and I um, last week watched all of their third down passes last year, and just you know we got to got to get a sense of what their pass concept, what were their go to concepts, and often Cooper Cup was really uh, you know kind of the guy to watch in those scenarios. You know, when you look at him since he's entered the league in 2017, third down receptions, he's sixth in the NFL. Yep, And that's behind Keenan Allen, Michael Thomas, Julio Jones, DeAndre Hopkins, Adam Thielen, Cooper Cup. Is that the sixth name you would expect to hear, you know, behind guys like Julio and Mike Thomas? I think there's a lot of other names you might have expected to see a little tighter to some of those names. But Cooper Cup, as productive and efficient as anybody, particularly on third down. All right, Ben, one other thing before we move on to scouting report that I want to ask you. Uh, I, you're obviously watching film from all around the NFL. You've already dug into the Eagles' next opponent in the Cincinnati Bengals. I'll be watching them uh, later on today. Give us a, a, something fun, a little fun nugget that you saw from film study around the NFL this week. Could be a young player that stood out or a cool play, a cool motion, uh, just something that you've seen uh, during your film study over the last couple of days. Oh, that's a really good question. You know, so I watched that Bengals game, really impressed with Joey Bosa. Just a, yeah. just a dominant, productive edge rusher. So fast, so violent with his hands. Didn't he have um, like double-digit pressures too in this game? It sure felt like it. I didn't see or, or tally it because I was kind of focusing on the Bengals there, but you couldn't help but notice the destruction. Tough tough first draw for Jonah Williams, first game at left tackle. Mm. Tough first draw for Joe Burrow's first game against that Chargers defense. But Joe Burrow, the only rookie quarterback to play a snap in week one. I don't care if he won, lost. I don't care if he put on his helmet the wrong way. The fact that he completed a game, nearly won the game with no training camp or limited training camp, no preseason, just huge props. He's so tough. He's accurate. He's athletic. He'll be fine. Uh, Really excited to see him. Really impressed with the Green Bay Packers this past week. That offense is looking like 
They're sharp. They're faster. They're more multiple this year and year two under Matt LaFleur. Getting some two-way versatility like Josiah DeGuara. This offense is just leaning a little bit more towards the San Francisco 49ers philosophy of having two-way players like they have George Kittle and Kyle Juszczyk. Um, Devontae Adams, you know, really emerging as bona fide top three receiver in this NFL. He could be on his way to an all pro year, really fun, competitive team uh, up there in Green Bay. So a lot of a lot of interesting things around the league. I love watching the rookies, Fran, especially week one, especially no preseason. I had to peep Javon Kinlaw's 39 snaps in his debut. Uh, How about CJ Henderson, Jacksonville? Mm. Two interceptions, big pass breakup on fourth down to seal the game. Press man against T.Y. Hilton, no help over the top. I mean, for a rookie corner, which I always think that's a learn-on-the-job position, it's so hard to come right in and be a dominant corner. Revis wasn't dominant year one. Richard Sherman wasn't dominant year one. Yeah, maybe Marshawn Lattimore was, but right. it's really hard to come right out the gate and be a polished press corner in the NFL. Typically, you'll take your licks, but C.J. Henderson, one of the more impressive rookie debuts in the NFL. Mm, I love that. He was a guy I was really, really high on. We talked about him a lot uh, on the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA, which you can catch wherever podcasts can be found. All right, Ben, stay right where you are. We're going to do our scouting report segment now. Let's get that going. Dim those lights. We're headed to the film room for the scouting report. All right, so this week on Scouting Report, as I mentioned earlier, last week we talked about Jimmy Moreland, Ben, and he obviously had uh, one of the biggest plays in the game for Washington with that interception in the third quarter. This week I want to focus on a guy that we just talked about uh, for a little bit in that last segment, and that is Cooper Cup. So I thought we'd kind of go through our notes on him coming out of college and you know what we've seen from him on film. And to me, like I'll just kind of buzz through some of my, the highlights of my report on him, Ben. Um, four-year starter, mostly in the slot, but also work, work a little bit on the outside. Uh, got some reps in the Wildcat uh, when he was in college as well. Uh, both his dad and his grandfather uh, played in the league, so he certainly had uh, the bloodlines there. Decent athlete, not special, more quick than fast, and I thought that showed up uh, at the combine. Um, slippery player. He could shake defenders in a phone booth and skate by. Um, above average college route runner. I thought that he ran most of his routes in the playbook, uh, showed a really good understanding of how to get open. He could still clean some things up at the top of his stem, but overall I thought he was good, not great as a route runner. I thought he maximized his catch radius, really great hands, had the ability to make some highlight stabs away from his frame, uh, you know, really, really reliable receiver, only had two drops all season. Uh, overall, the ball just rarely hit the ground. Competitive kid, he'd go up and battle in contested situations, strength to fight through contact, and they used him a lot in the screen game, just to get the ball in his hands, and he had a real knack for making plays and yards after catch situations, making guys miss in space and picking up extra yardage. I wanted to get him, see him get a little bit better versus press. That was a big concern for me coming into the NFL and his speed and explosiveness were not strengths. He ran a 4.59 at the combine. It showed up there. Um, his 40 and his jumps were terrible, but the shuttles were very good. So it goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, quicker than fast. And a lot of his production, he was very, very productive. One of the most productive players to come from the FCS level. But a lot of those numbers came via the screen game. So, you know, I just had questions about, uh, you know, would he be able to sustain that level of production in the NFL? My overall statement on him, Above average college route runner with decent athleticism, good ball skills, and really reliable hands. Cup's going to play in the league. To me, he profiled more as a really reliable slot receiver than somebody who would consistently win on the outside. But overall, I liked him as a player. And Ben, I feel like a a lot of what we saw from him uh, at Eastern Washington has shown up. It's a lot of the stuff that we're seeing from him with the LA Rams. Yeah, one of the most productive players I think I've ever seen at any level, FBS, FCS. 
these reception numbers are wild. 93, 104, 114, 117. Those are his four years in college. Or 6,000 yards, 73 touchdowns. Look at the touchdown totals, 21, 16, 19, 17. Those are his stats at Eastern Washington. But productive player. But what were some of the issues, Fran? A lot of people question his level of competition, question his athleticism, question his size, question his long speed, his acceleration. 6'2", 204, played at Eastern Washington, ran 4.62. But... This is a guy that knows how to get himself open and knows how to catch the ball. And sometimes we just need to break this position down to what are we trying to do? And that's what it's all about. And you may call him, is he a little bit of a blue collar, you know, type of receiver because he doesn't have that explosive speed over the top or the dynamic ability with the ball in his hands. This guy has strong hands, deliberate releases, deliberate route stems, gets in and out of breaks excellent route runner can disguise where he's going can attack leverage he's productive after the catch he can make defenders miss he's strong he's immediate after that cash catch I thought he played a lot faster than that 40 time uh that 462 but we've seen enough guys in the NFL in that 455 465 range and they've really emerged of being some of the best route runner most productive players in the NFL whether that's Devontae Adams or Michael Thomas, DeAndre Hopkins, or, you know, maybe a more tough guy like an Anquan Bolden or Mohamed Sanu, Jarvis Landry, all four, six receivers. These guys are strong players, mentally strong players, and catch the football. Not only, you know, high pointing on the sideline, at the ground, the junk catches in traffic. And he's one of these guys that just don't get enamored with the, the upside stuff. This is a guy that gets open and catches the ball for him. And what have we seen in the NFL so far? It's a guy that gets himself open and catches the heck out of that football. And I think sometimes we get get a little too wrapped up with the test scores and the sizes and the upside and the explosive highlights. This is a guy that gets his job done. One thing I've just spent a lot of time doing over the last, you know, I would say the last two years or so is just trying to like wrap my head around not necessarily positional value, but just like trying to separate players that play at specific positions into buckets. Like, all right, what is it that makes this guy more valuable than that guy? And to, and to your point, when you look at uh, Cooper Cup, he, uh, yeah, you're not going to be blown away. He's not jaw-dropping in terms of the traits, but uh, when you look at his ability to get open and how many times we're watching the Rams uh, over the course, not just even over the last couple of weeks, but over the last few years where you're like, man, like Cooper cut, like just look at his ability to separate. Like he just sets defenders up for failure time and time again. Um, and, but on top of that too, I mean, he, he's just so automatic at the catch point. And even though he runs four, six, you get the ball in his hands and every single year, he did it the last time the Eagles played uh, the Rams. He's able to create those big plays after the catch, like time after time, again, along the sideline, he makes the first man miss and he's racing down. And he's cutting back across the green. He just finds ways to get open and make plays. My, my question for you is this, as we kind of look at, um, you know, his transition into the NFL, and this is, I think, huge when it comes to Sean McVay and just good coaching. I mentioned one of my big questions for him was getting off press coverage. Like, did he have the feet and the play strength to win early and be able to create separation? Then you see him as a rookie. You see him as a second-year player. How often, and still now, how often do we still see him bunch formations, stacked, two-man stack sets, where he gets that free release off the line of scrimmage. Most of his time spent in the slot anyway, but you can't get a hand on him early. So, yeah, all right, he can't get off press coverage as well as uh, you know a majority of the, the starting receivers in the league. 
but we're not going to put him in that situation where he has to get off press coverage all that often. And then now you're going to see him get up with free access to the second level and do work. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was just sitting here smirking because you're like reading off my page here. Just going through the issues that I had for him as a prospect really quickly. Acceleration, questionable production outside the numbers, ability to beat press coverage in the NFL, the level of competition, and the size and strength kind of went into the combination of beating press coverage. So what do you do with them? Acceleration. Well, we don't have to have them run so many vertical routes down the field. Outside the number issue. All right, well, let's line them up over the middle of the field in the slot front. Might have some issues beating press. Okay, we could line them in some stacks. We could hide him. We could put him in the bunch to get some free access. So there's ways to kind of work around skill sets and put him in positions to be successful. And I think as he's grown in his three years in the NFL, now in his fourth year, I think he's gotten better at press coverage. He doesn't need to be schemed as much. But coming out of college, I thought this guy was a scheme-versatile player because of just those foundation traits of I get open and I catch the ball. There's a place for that in the NFL. And I don't need to have a whole lot of nuance for how I used them. Just speaking those three points of the acceleration, outside the numbers, beat press, those are very subtle ways for offensive coordinators to just adjust the usage. And I think having a guy like that just plug and plays very easily into offensive schemes. How you and I were having fun yesterday and I was, I just kept like peppering you with questions like, um, all right, would you take Cooper cup or this guy, Cooper cup or this guy, Cooper cup or this guy. And, you know, just trying to figure out like, how do you stack him against some of these other slot receivers in the NFL? You look at AJ Brown and Tyler Boyd and Tyler Lockett. And, uh, you know, you look at Jarvis Landry and Juju Smith Schuster, uh, Golden Tate, Christian Kirk. You know, Jamison Crowder, Sterling Shepard. I mean, uh, so many guys that have been making plays uh, from the slot. And I, just, I think it, and all these guys are coming slightly different packages and the, obviously the different schemes and things of that nature. But, I mean, Cooper Cup, like he got paid last weekend um, for the reason that he's one of the best in the league to do what he does. Man, 94 catches for 1,100 yards, 10 touchdowns, moves the chains, you know, was winning after the catch, winning in the red zone switched his number back to his college number for 2020. (laughs) You know, uh, I just think uh, you see these contracts three years, $48 million contract he signed a couple weeks ago. And you just like, ah, Cooper cup. It just, you know, has that kind of still stigma to it. It's a productive, productive player and just watch him. And I know he had the injury in 2018 was only able to play half the season, but was healthy last year. And I think he stays on the field. We both kind of were in a uh, weird kind of vortex of, classifying Robert Woods and Cooper Cup. Are they number ones? Are they slots? Are they high quality number threes? Are they elite slot receivers? Like just trying to peg them into a, you know, into a role and into like a positional fit, which can be challenging. You can pick that apart. And once you start talking, you know, rankings and dollar amounts, and that's when the conversation really grows. But when you just watch him, Fran, and just break it down to almost an archaic level, he gets open and he catches the ball yep. does it consistently well. And it's like, let's not get caught up in everything else. That's what you're asked to do as a receiver in the NFL. And he does it at such a high level. Mm, he's uh, certainly one of the best at what he does in the league. Ben, this was fun, man. Really appreciate you joining me once again here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Fennel underscore NFL. Ben, we will talk to you next week, man. 
Before we continue with the episode, I just want to take a quick second to remind everyone that we are just under two months away from Election Day on November 3rd. Did you know that four years ago, 100 million eligible voters did not participate in the general election? I don't care who you support, but that number is entirely too high. So I've got one question for you. Are you registered to vote? And then also, do you know where you can vote in your district? Have you checked to see if you can vote early? Do you know what time you can arrive at your polling place? Voting matters, not just for the presidential election, but for your local and state elections as well. Please, it's all of our civic duty to make sure that our voices are heard. Get out and vote on November 3rd. Great stuff from Ben, who, again, you could follow on Twitter just like I do, at Ben Fennel underscore NFL. And while you're at it, I'm at Eagles XOs. That's where I post all the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that we produce at PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on all forms of social media. That is one way to support the show. But the other way is to go on to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, leave us a rating, and leave us a comment. I wanted to give a shout-out to a couple of people who went on to Apple Podcasts, left some questions, uh, write him, left a five-star you saying, Fran, I wanted to ask you about Miles Sanders. I know we've only seen a small sample size, so it's mostly projection, but do you think Miles could be the perfect combination of Brian Westbrook and LaShawn McCoy, meaning he's got the football acumen to line up in the slot and still have the wiggle and burst in between the tackles that Shady did so well? I, I think it's, it's still early to kind of make that lofty comparison. Obviously, Shady McCoy, Brian Westbrook, two of the best to ever suit up for the Philadelphia Eagles, regardless of position, but that's the kind of player that the Eagles are hoping to have here with Miles Sanders. And what we saw last year as a rookie with what he did in the run game and in the pass game, he certainly has that ability. It's a different skill set than Shady McCoy. You know, Shady had that ability every single time to make that first man miss. And his, his wiggle and shake, just about as good as anybody, not just that that's worn an Eagles uniform, but, I mean, you remember when he was at his peak, you had the comparisons to, like, Barry Sanders, but, you know, on a weekly basis. Some of the stuff that he was able to do was just ridiculous. And then Brian Westbrook, he was the ultimate weapon. He was just so versatile with everything that he was able to do. He ran routes at such a high level. So you, you want to find uh, that happy medium. Certainly, Miles Sanders kinds of fit, kind of fits into that bucket. So it's a great question. I think it's a little early to put him in that bucket, but that's exactly what you're hoping that he can be. Excited to see what Miles Sanders looks like here this weekend against the Rams. And then last question, a Lions fan left a five-star review saying, Fantasy Nut, listen to every Greg Cosell podcast. And they also spent uh, a few months living in Philadelphia and said how much they love the city. So thanks so much to a Lions fan. Write him two five-star reviews. We got, were able to get the question in there from write him as well. So glad they were able hit on that. All right, so I want to wrap this show up. I caught up with Eagles cornerback Nikel Roby Coleman to talk about his development as a corner. It's time for that interview right now. Really excited to be joined by Eagles cornerback Nikel Roby Coleman. Nikel, I'm interested to kind of dive into your background, man. I, my first question for you, how long have you been playing defensive back? Like, did you, grow, did you jump right in playing DB as a kid? Like, when did it start for you? Yeah, I started as a kid. Uh, my dad put the football in my hands when I was five years old, and uh, my daddy played DB. My daddy went to college um, as a as a cornerback uh, back in his day, and so you know when he had a son, you know he he groomed me um, into being a DB, and so that's why that's why I get it from. Uh, did he like talk to you about just like the mindset? Like, do you get that from your dad in terms of uh, the the confidence, the swagger you need to be able to play out in the, uh, in, in the secondary? Yeah, yeah, I got that from my <laughs> pops. Uh, he instilled that in me. Um, he, he taught me a lot, you know, about being on the island and, you know, uh, and, and how to be a great DB. And, um, yeah, he, uh, you know, he hard knows, but um, 
I definitely picked up my swagger and my and my uh, mentality from him. Did you play other sports growing up? Yeah, yeah. I played uh, basketball and I ran track. What was your best sport? Um, I mean, other than football, I like track. Okay. What yeah. would you run in track? Um, I did the 100. I did the 100 meters. I did the four by one, and uh, I did the long jump and triple jump. Okay. All right. So you you go. You were a big time recruit coming out of high school. Uh, you know everybody had offers for you. You you know you got a ton of attention. Clemson, Georgia, Florida. You end up going to USC. What what was it that brought you from Florida going out west to USC? Yeah. Uh, initially, I was uh, committed to the University of Georgia my tenth grade year, and then uh, they fired the defensive staff there. Uh, during um, my time in high school. And so Lane Kiffin uh, was recruiting me. Uh, Lane Kiffin and Money Kiffin uh, recruited me heavy at ten University of Tennessee. And so uh, I decommitted from Georgia, and I made like a soft uh, verbal uh, commit to Tennessee. And then uh, literally three weeks later, um, Lane Kiffin went to USC. And, um, you know, Lane called me up one day. I was, you know, in high school. He just called me up, and he asked me, I'd be interested in coming to the West Coast. You know, I took a visit, and um, I, I fell in love with it. And, you know, I said, I told, I told Lane, I said, yeah, I'll come over there to the West Coast. And that's how I ended up being a Trojan. Mm. Did your dad, like, have to, like, school you up on Monty Kiffin and, like, what he was as a defensive back coach? And, uh, you know, what did you get from Monty during your time at USC? Um, at USC, Monty Kiffin was like a father figure to me because mm. um, I was so far away from um, – my house, and at the time, my mom had just passed away four months before I got to uh, USC, mm. and so they would always check on me, always make sure I was okay, uh, talk to me from a level of a of just a person, you know, and uh, they always made sure I was okay, and you know, I appreciate them for that. And Money um, Kiffin, he's just so energetic and such a cool guy, and um, you know. They, they just made sure they put their arms around me because I was so far away from home. My teammates, they made sure they made me feel comfortable. And uh, it was just, you know, a day-by-day thing. And before you knew it, I was I felt like I was from the West Coast at some point. And so uh, it, it all it all worked out. And um, they was just so, like, they just good people, you know. Um, Lane Kiffin, um, his, I, met, I met Money Kiffin, his wife. They're just all sweet people. What was it that – was there, like, a, a moment that you kind of learned from him where you're like, man, like, the light just kind of goes on in terms of learning how to become a DB? Was there uh, a moment that, you know, some takeaways that you've taken from Monty during your time under him? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, when I got to USC, Money Kiffin gave me all the film from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers when he used to run the Tampa 2, and yep. he told me to look at Rundy Barber. And um, he was just like, hey, you know – going to be playing in the nickel a lot. We're going to have you on the outside, but, you know, you're going to be playing in the nickel a lot. I want you to look at Runde. You know, Runde, basically a legend in the nickel, uh, made, made, you know, made his whole career playing out the nickel and playing some outside. And uh, so I would, you know, look at the tape and, you know, listen to Money Kiffin. He has so many stories that he can just tell, like, about what great players, what all great players did and all that all that advice that, you know, he was telling me, I just soaked it up and just tried to imitate that um, on my on my playing level and try to go out there and just be another one, a great player that he ever coached, you know? And and so it, it was it was like, it was all a blessing in disguise. Um, I'm so happy that 
uh, I got with money. Um, you know, a guy that old with that much wisdom, he's not really old, but he got <laughs> he got a lot of wisdom, and he can teach you a lot just about life, um, especially about football. And uh, it was the perfect uh, guy to talk to. You know, he he would he would tell me, you know, like he said, the stuff you're saying now, you're gonna see in the NFL. It might be a different terminology, it might be different techniques, but you know, what you see now is not gonna surprise you once you get to the to the league. And I, I, it it was. No, it's true, and uh, it was an easier transition going from uh, college to the league. Well, I hope one of those tapes he didn't show you was the 2002 uh, NFC title game, the Eagles-Bucks. It was a, it's a little bit of a, a rough spot for me. I don't know if I, I can't even talk about it too much. But you go to the league, you have the success with, with Buffalo. You go to, to the L.A. Rams. Who were some of the guys that when you first got to the NFL that helped kind of coach you up and bring you along and were mentors for you? Uh, Stefan Gilmore uh, was with me in Buffalo, so that he was an immediate person that uh, I, you know, Im- imitated my game out there. He was a bigger corner, but you know, look, little things that I seen him do um, and things that he would teach me, like about splits, about uh, reading through the three step uh, mm-hmm. to quarterbacks, and you know how they see things. Um, so Stefan Gilmore was a, a great person to look at. Um, at the time, it was Leotis McKelvin uh, was there. And both of those guys were first-rounders, top 15 picks in the draft in, their, in, in the year that they went in. So I was like, why not? Mm. Soak up all this, all this knowledge and, you know, look at how they play the game of football, you know. And so looking at those two guys and them just putting their arms around me, they, they seen a lot of talent in me when I was young, but I didn't know how much talent I had in myself at the time. And so they would just tell me, like, man, you can, you know, do this. You can play a play a route like this and put less effort in what you're doing, you know, you, by just playing your technique and playing your leverage and everything like that, knowing where your help is on the defense. And, um, they, you know, they taught me how to actually, you know, study our defense and, and to know when you're in the game, you know where your help is. And so now you, you can play with another, another level of confidence. And so at the time, I, it didn't really hit me because I was just focused on my job. But as I, you know, got a little older, the stuff that they was telling me, it just was all coming back. It was all coming back. I was like, okay, split, stance, staggers, you know, uh, looking at all the nuances, the small nuances of the game that people don't really pay attention, pay attention to. They was like sticklers on those things. They, it was a big deal to them. And so I was like, wow, like the, the small things really matter in the league, you know. That's the difference between... You know, Stefan, you know, Stefan Gilmore getting eight picks or five picks, you know, little the little things. And um I would say, uh, from the safety perspective, uh Jarius Bird was like at the time he was going sure. through a little franchise tag with Buffalo and you know, just seeing how he played the game and like how he telling, you know, the corners how to play, um, play defense on the outside and which will make it easier for, for both of them, you know, for corners and the safety. He would just teach us, like, hey, yo, this is what I see back here. If y'all just play like this, then, you know, I can get there and there. I can help you both ways, you know. And so it, it was it was such a, a eye-opener um, saying, you know, great guys, being around great guys like that. I felt like I, I was blessed to uh, be around great guys like that and to learn the game. And, um you know, at the time, Dunny Henderson was my defensive back coach, and you know he knew the game, and 
and he knew how to play. He knew how to play the game because he played it himself. And uh, you know, my my first, you know, my rookie year, all the way up until like my third, fourth year, that's when you know um, everything uh, I was learning. I was just soaking. I was just soaking it up with those type of great guys. That's awesome, man. I I have one more question for you. One more topic, and you know, the Eagles taking on the Rams this week. Relationship with you and Robert Woods, because, you know, not only did you play down there in L.A. with those guys, uh, you and Robert Woods came into the league together Mm -hmm. from USC. You both were the same recruiting class at USC. So Mm -hmm. you're there for three years together, 2010-2012. You both end up in Buffalo as rookies. You both leave after your first contract, same offseason, go to L.A. Mm -hmm. So you've been with him for the last, like, 10, 11 years. Like, do you guys talk about how unique that is, that relationship? I've never seen anything like that. Uh, we we um we talk about it all the time, and actually, this is the first time we was ever on a different team in like <laughs> ten or eleven years. We always been teammates. Um, we always talk about it. We always be uh we always just you know tell each other like man. He said we and we was roommates. Right. We, we was roommates too. My freshman year, and uh we be like wow man like we was just in our dorm rooms. You know we always talked about that. Like still to this day like. Every year we be like, hey, another year, you know, <laughs> another year we made it through, you know, we 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 doing this thing together, and uh, his parents is so nice, Miss Woods and Mr. Woods, they are outstanding, outstanding people, and so, you know, seeing them, they was like, wow, like you, like y'all y'all been teammates y'all whole NFL career, like I don't think people really know, like people really paying attention to like to that or whatever like that. I was just like, yeah, like it's something that people don't really. You know, but we know, but like me, Robert, you know, we know. And so it's so cool. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Um, Robert is a great guy, hard worker. I know I got him better, and I know he got me better. Yeah. I, mean, I want to ask you the last question for you. Because I feel like Robert Woods is one of the most criminally underrated players in, the, in all of the, the NFL. Very true. Give, give us a scouting report. What, what is Robert Woods as a receiver? You've seen him evolve from high, uh, college or high school senior to college freshman all the way up through one of the best players in the league. Yeah, I know, I know Robert like the back of my hand. Um, Robert is a smooth receiver. He get in and out of his cuts really well. Um, he, make, he make all his routes look the same. You know, so if he running a post, that post will look like a comeback. That post gonna look like a, a, a dig route coming across the middle. He know he know how to uh, switch different speeds uh, within within the game. You know, and that's what's so unique about Robert, and that people don't really respect. Like people need to respect that more of mm. about him. You know, um, you'll see some guys that can't get open against guys like Stephon Gilmore. You know. But I didn't see with my own eyes. I didn't see Robert get open against top tier corners throughout my whole career. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I was just like, wow, like, you know, for for me, I'm used to him. So I'm like, I knew he was going. You know, I knew I kind of <laughs> knew he was going to do that. But like to see it happen to somebody else, I was like, if I was that DB, I would have went for it too. You know, if I didn't know any better. And so to see that, I, I was like, man, like. Robert is, like, so smooth. Like, it don't even feel like he's running fast. But once you get beside him, he's, like, he's out of there, you know. And so he's not he, he he's he's not the person that, like, oh, he got Olympic speed. No, it ain't, it, ain't, it ain't that. It's the fact that you think he's not that fast until he run past you. And so that's the sneaky part about Robert that I think a lot of people don't uh, really put the put respect on when it comes to him. 
Um, but more moreover than anything, he's one of the crispiest route runners I've done faced ever. Well, I'm sure that you guys had a plenty of one-on-one battles in practice yes. every day. Excited to see you guys uh, go to one-on-one potentially this Sunday. Nikkel, thanks so much for joining us here for this one-on-one. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Nikkel Roby Coleman and all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcast offerings on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade. For everybody here at the Novacare Complex, I am Fran Duffy. We will talk to you next week.